That's just what the Lord laid on my heart. I just wanted to read through that. So, where we're at, we're in uh, John chapter 11. And I think we can actually finish it this morning, even though we're going to have short. So it depends on you guys. If you have lots of questions, we won't finish. <laughs> Who remembers what John is about? What's John about? Anybody? What's John about? Pardon? Yes, and I said I'd read it every week, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. Um, but then you have to tell me what it's about. So John writes in chapter 20, verse 30, he says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So what are the three things that he wants us to get out of this? Yes. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to believe the truth of that statement and he wants us then to uh, abide, which we haven't gotten to what abide means yet, but John uses that word probably more than any of the other um, writers in the New Testament. And there's a good reason why he uses that. It has to do with a kind of intimacy that we're invited into it has to do with like dwelling with. And you can imagine the kind of intimacy that you've experienced and all the people that you've shared residence with in the history of your life um, and what that means. Um, you know, I always find it interesting when I watch, I'm a big fan of uh, media, so I watch movies and stuff like that a lot. And you never see the mundane things in life in the movies. Right? But when you live with someone, you live out the mundane things in life. Right? You live out what intimacy looks like. And we have to kind of help us reframe because we have, in many ways, a Hollywood view of who Christ is and who God is and our relationship to him. And it's actually much more than that, much more profound. And that's what John wants us to understand. So... Who can tell me how we've taken our trajectory through John so far? Daniel. Uh, um, it's uh, been a, a um, well, John has, has described the um, signs that Jesus did in a way where it uh, shows him challenging the Challenging the challenging religion and the festivals that the that the Israelites have mm -hmm. put into place for them by God when they um, exited Egypt. Yep. For the most part. And so he's uh, showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these of all these things that are of God that are that are good, that are things that um, that are life and that are um, the fulfillment of life. Right. And that um, there's there's basically a uh, there's a fivefold organization of John. We'll knock off the bookends. There's a, a prologue where John gives us some heavy duty theology about who Christ is, and there's an epilogue which talks about issues that the church um, would have to deal with. But then in the in the main body 
of John, there are three sections. There's a, a section of public ministry, signs, as you said. Um, there's a section of private ministry, which we haven't gotten to yet. And then there's the, the account of what Jesus did for us on the cross and his death and resurrection. And the, the part of the public ministry is organized around um, challenging specific aspects of religious practice. And so you'll notice that my outline here only goes up through religious institutions covering Hanukkah. And which religious institution is covered in uh, John chapter 11? It's, it's part of the public ministry, but it's not about a religious practice in the sense of um, weddings or the temple or rabbinical teaching or tradition. Um, it's not about Sabbath or Passover or Festival of Tabernacles. It's about, uh, it's about um, our life being connected to our physical body, which can rot away, but yet we still are sustained by, by Right. What's the, the final thing that when, when people look at, so if you go through the, uh, the Catholic Church and you look at the sacraments, and the sacramental system, it basically kind of covers all of these different things. Um, it covers um, weddings, and it covers teaching, and it covers um, tradition, and it covers the, the various ceremonies of uh, uh, communion, and, and that type of thing. And the last one, what's the last uh, sacrament in the Catholic Church. I'm going to pick on you, David. Anointing of the sick. Pardon? The anointing of the sick. And, um, so what do they call that? Extreme unction. Extreme unction. <laughs> Extreme unction. And it's, uh, or sometimes it's called last rite. Last rite. So what happens is, is when someone is in that, that place, the final breaths of their life, um, there is uh, a need for them to go through a sacrament associated with that death ritual, right? Well, Jesus was pushing against all of those rituals. So when we look at chapter 11, we're looking at something that is really the, the final piece of what he wants to present in public ministry. And what we've seen is as we've moved through chapter 9, chapter 10, and now chapter 11, there's been a repeated um, challenge to the, to the hearer. And that some truth about who God is, who Christ is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, um, gets challenged, truth is put forth, and then there's a, a challenging statement. Do you believe this? Right? Do you believe this? Well, that's where we left off last week, was in one of those challenging statements. Do you believe this? So I mentioned that John chapter 11 takes place in four scenes. And, uh, and, then, I didn't, uh, and then I didn't give you where the, the scene markers are. Right? So um, when, we're, when we look at uh, narrative literature, you want to break it up into um, the characters and the setting and the plot. And plot is organized uh, episodically through scenes. 
And what you see is in uh, verse 1 through uh, verse 16 is the first scene. It's the scene where Jesus is down. Um, he can't enter into Jerusalem because it's not quite his time yet. But he's on his final ascent. So what we're going to talk about in uh, Luke this morning in the main service is we're going to talk about the beginning of that walk to the cross, which started on a mountain in the north in Galilee. And Jesus came all the way down from that northern territory all the way to uh, just outside of Jerusalem. And it wasn't safe for him to stay there. So he went down the hill. I'll show you where the hill is. And I didn't bring my power supply. That's why this thing keeps going off. Um, and we'll see how long it goes, how long the battery is good for. So um, I'm going to zoom out here a little bit, and I'm going to point out... Um, and I, Oh, here's my pointer. Okay. So, um, up here in the north, is that in focus? Because I took my glasses off now, so I can't see. Is it in focus? No? Okay, well, if it looks good, then we'll call it good. So, up here in the north, you see some snow caps, right? Um, what happens is, geographically, you've got the Sea of Galilee right here. You've got this this valley just north of the Sea of Galilee, and it gets up to the base of this mountain range where there's snow. And at, that is an area called Caesarea Philippi. Right? And what happened is, is uh, all the way up here in the north in Mount Hermon, which is where Jesus started his trek, he went all the way from here, all the way down, came up, all the way down to here, came up to Jerusalem. And then because of um, that it wasn't safe there, right? Because at Hanukkah in December, he was actually in Jerusalem. And it was there that he made claims about his divinity. And the Jews wanted to stone him. So he basically had to bug out. But his challenge there was um, to a blind man and to uh, those that were there for that festival of dedication was, do you believe this? And so he bugged out and he came down here to an area next to the Jordan. And that's where scene one takes place. We covered this last week. And so he's down here at the Jordan River, um, right in this area where John was baptizing. And I turned off the, the cities in here because I thought it might be easier to see what's going on. What happened is Jesus, in scene one, verses one through sixteen, starts here, and he comes up this ascent to where uh, Jerusalem is, right in here. And on one side of this ridge, see if I can blow it up and show you what it looks like. Okay, so he actually came up um, this ascent right here, and came up around onto, let's see if I can uh, point it out, um, thinking it's right here. I can turn on the cities if you want. But basically, comes up this ascent, comes over the hill, and down the Mount of Olives in order to get to Jerusalem. Well, just on the other side of the hill is where this next scene takes place. It takes place in a, in a city called Bethany. And so, Jesus makes a trip 
from the Jordan to Bethany, but how long does it take him to make that trip? Anybody remember? It, it takes a good solid day to do the walk because it's more than 20 miles. And they would do that in a day. They would go all the way from Jericho to Jerusalem in a day. They had a runner that went from where um, Lazarus's house was and, and Martha and Mary that went down the hill, or a runner, a, a messenger, that went down the hill to tell them that Lazarus was sick. Well, that took a day. When Jesus got the message, he decided to wait how long? Two days. Two days. And then another day back up. So by the time the second scene comes up, it's already been four days. And that's what we read in verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that um, he, Lazarus, had been in the tomb for four days. Because it was the practice uh, of the Jews to bury someone right when they, when they pass. So they would uh, uh, wrap them with spices and grave clothes and they would put them in a sealed tomb. And they would leave them there for about a year. They would put them in the tomb. There's a little shelf in there. They put them on the shelf. Um, they roll a stone in front of the tomb and they let decomposition do its work. And they come back a year later and they roll back the stone because by then the smell has passed because that decomposition is completed and all that's left is the bones. And they would take the bones and they would scrape them off. they put them into a special box called an ossuary. And that was where they put all of the bones of their family. So when they say that someone is gathered to their fathers, it's talking about this process of being buried, decomposing, taking the bones and putting them in the bone box. So your, your bone box is your family's box. Right? And so they're four days into this process when this occurs, when Jesus gets there. And he intentionally waited this period of time, it says. When he got this message, he knew that Lazarus was already dead. How he knew that, even the messenger didn't know that, but Jesus knew that because he's Jesus. He's the Son of God. <clears throat> he intentionally waited two days, and he did that because he wanted the glory of God to be displayed. Right? He even, he even says the reason that he's doing this. He, uh, in verse 4, says, But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So, the whole, the whole point of this is that Jesus knew that physical death is not the end. That there's something more important than um, this corrupted flesh and blood. In fact, he said that several times. He told people, if you read the other accounts in the gospel message, um, that Jesus said, you know, don't, don't fear the one that can kill your body. Fear the one who can cast your soul into hell. In other words, he's differentiating between um, the corrupted physical reality we have in this world and the true spiritual reality in God's presence. Now, one of the things I'm going to say is that it is a corrupted physical reality. It's not supposed to be this way. But nonetheless, because of sin, here we are. And what Jesus' goal is, is um, his um, mission is to save people from death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Such that when the, at the final day, when the resurrection occurs, there's a resurrection of 
the physical body as well as the spiritual because we're intended to have physical bodies. Those that are in Christ will actually have a body like his. This is why the resurrection is so powerful because when Jesus died, he never died again, right? So when he passed, they didn't, um, they put him in the tomb hurriedly but on the third day, he was raised, and he wasn't in that tomb anymore. In fact, he was very polite. His mother would have been proud. He folded up the grave clothes and put them there at the end of the, end of the shelf um, so that they could reuse them. They reused everything in those days. So when Christ was raised, he was raised in an incorruptible body. It's not that he died in a corrupted body like we die in a corrupted body. And this is something that we'll go into a little bit later this morning. <coughs> because there was no sin in him. But rather, he took our sin upon him and he died our death. He didn't have to die. He chose to die. And that's different. Now, Lazarus here is corrupted. He has, he's a sinful man. And so, um, he doesn't have this glorified body that Christ is going to have when he comes out of the tomb. That's the promise that we have. We want to understand that Jesus is distinguishing between the nature of true life and a nature of, of life that is corrupted in this world and ends in death. And Lazarus is caught in this one, but Jesus desires that he would have the other, that he would have true life. In fact, he doesn't just desire it for Lazarus and Mary and Martha because he wants all to come to know him and all to share in this resurrected life. That's his goal. Um, but we read in, in verse 17, it says, So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming went to meet him, and Mary stayed at the house. Martha said, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And that there, she, so she understands the message that there's a corrupted life and there's an incorrupted life and that there's a resurrection. And that's a good thing. Not everybody believed that. And she says, um, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So we went through this last week. He is that resurrected life. There is no um, restoration or um, there is no ability for us to go from corrupt corruptible to incorruptible apart from Jesus' resurrection. We have to have that incorruptible resurrection of Jesus. And he demonstrated that in his death and resurrection. That's the same that we will get. We will be like him as he is. We read that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. It says, when he appears, he being Jesus, when he appears, who is our life, we will be as he is in glory. So it's talking about the kind of resurrected body that we'll have. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He's talking about the nature of true life. He's talking about eternal life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So there he's talking about the resurrection. Anyone who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. There he's talking about eternal life. So that means eternal life is a present reality. The resurrection to, from corruptible flesh to incorruptible body is something that's future. But the eternal life that we get by being in Christ is a present reality. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then he asks this question, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So she makes a good confession. And in many ways you can say she's put her trust in him even though he hasn't yet died for the sins of the world. It's a remarkable thing. This woman had a lot of trust. That's the end of scene two. I told you I'd tell you where the scene markers are. So scene two, for scene one is about Jesus explaining that it's for the glory of God that he's going to return to Jerusalem. And scene two is about explaining the nature of life and death of resurrection, the corruptible body, and the incorruptible body. Now he's got more to say about that yet because Lazarus has still been in the tomb for four days. So we get to scene three. Scene three has to do with how the Lord cares for people. So it would be one thing for Jesus to make this claim, I am the resurrection and the life, and that's all it was. It may be true, but if he chooses not to give life to us, we're still lost. Right? It says in John chapter 5, when we read that, when we read that area of, of the account in John, that Jesus made the claim that just as the Father has life in himself, in other words, he's self-existent, very life comes from him, so also the Son has life in himself, and can give it to whomever he chooses. That's a very powerful statement. That means, boy, you better be friends with Jesus, because he's the keeper of life. But guess what? We're all enemies of Jesus. By the very corruption that's in us, we would never choose Christ, apart from him doing something on our behalf. He has to somehow do something that restores us to a place where we can understand enough in our head and grasp in our heart. We can know that he is the Christ and we can believe and believing in him, in his name, we have eternal life. So something needs to occur. God needs to act. And that act is through love. Right? And John has a lot to say about love. In fact, he said when Jesus was announcing his mission early on, John 3.16, he said, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. How many of you memorized that in Bible camp way back when? Right? 
How many of you understood it when you memorized it? <laughs> it's, a, it's a great saying, and it's one of those things, you know, people will hold up at the, at the football game as they're green and yellow or whatever they are, and they hold up John 316, right? Um, and the world knows John 316, but do they know Jesus? Do they believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we have life in his name? That means in his person. So something has to happen. God comes to us, and he comes to us in love, and that's scene three. Scene three is the scene with Mary. Scene two is the scene with Martha. Scene three is the scene with Mary. It goes from uh, verse 28 to verse 37. Let's read it. When she had said this, Martha, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. So he's approaching Bethany, he hasn't got there yet. Martha had come out to him, because um, that's Martha's way. He basically stopped there. Martha goes back, tells Mary. Mary then comes out to meet Jesus. Then the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So we mentioned that Bethany is close to Jerusalem, just over the hill, um, that people from Jerusalem and the surrounding communities, and there were several surrounding communities around Jerusalem, um, they knew... Uh, Lazarus and Martha and Mary because they were a family of some renown. Um, it's believed from extra biblical literature that the patriarch of this family of Lazarus and Martha and Mary was uh, Simon the leper who Jesus healed. And so uh, some would speculate that maybe Lazarus was that leper but Simon and Lazarus are two different names. So um, I would suggest that now, this was a family of notoriety because Jesus had interacted with this family, this family of sinners, for a long time. In fact, he had become a close family friend. It's kind of like, you know, uh, may not be a blood relative, but when it's time for Thanksgiving, you invite your kin. Right? So Jesus was like kin to Martha and Mary. And a lot of people came to Martha and Mary's house. And it just so happened that Jesus was uh, associated with that family. And when these people saw Mary, Mary, who was totally broken for her brother, her brother has died. That time in their life has passed. And she's weeping, and all these people come and they do this part of it ceremonial. They weep wildly and loudly, beat their chest, rip their garments, throw ashes in the air. They do all sorts of things that represent the loss of life. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't do that because he understands something greater. But Mary goes running out to Jesus, and what does she say? It says, Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So she believes that, like Martha believed, that just the presence of God can prevent death. He could heal people. He touched their dad, healed him of leprosy, and that was something that was totally not done. You don't touch a leper, right? He had 
taken Mary, who was a wreck in her sins, and changed her life. Right? We know that from other accounts in the Bible. And so she believes that Jesus could have made a difference, but he had to have been there. Like Jesus couldn't have made a difference if he was 20 miles away. That's a broken belief. You know, we think that God can't act unless we can see it. God can act whether we see it or not. In fact, God is acting while we're his enemy to make us, to break our heart, to draw us to him. Right? So, just because we don't see him doesn't mean he's not acting. But Martha and Mary are both like, no, you know, if you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And I don't know what they expected because their expectation for everybody is you pay your taxes and you die, right? Those are the two certainties in life, death and taxes. So how long could Jesus have sustained Lazarus? But she makes a statement, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. When we see that he was troubled, what was he troubled about? Jesus knew this wasn't going to end in death. He even said so. He announced it four days earlier. Why was Jesus troubled? Any ideas? Pardon? Because they didn't quite get it. Because they didn't get it. He was troubled that they didn't get it, and that what they didn't get was this whole problem of death. They didn't get that they were fully deserving of that death. They experienced it. But people don't want to believe the truth. They want to think, no, everything's good. Everything's okay. They don't want to acknowledge it. No, the consequence of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus was greatly troubled because he saw a bunch of sinful, sick people. And they were all dying. Is that why when you talk about the uh, comforting Mary, you identify some as Jews there to really drive home the point of the not really, the, the Jews never died? Right. <clears throat> uh, yes and no. So we know that there were certain of uh, the religious leaders, and sometimes they're called the Jews, right? So the, <coughs> the Jews would have been Pharisees, would have been Sadducees, although probably not Sadducees here because Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they're Sadducees. So you would have had Pharisees there, you would have had um, other religious leaders, scribes, things like that, but they would have been coming probably because this is a public thing that you do. You support people when they're grieving, and they knew that Jesus might be there, right? So in that sense, yes, the Jews is talking about some of those people, but not all of those people, just because they were in that leadership, were necessarily in that class of disbelief. You got Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, right? And he actually had a part in Jesus' burial, um, as, uh, along with Joseph of Arimathea. So you had um, some that were there in disbelief, and we're going to see that in scene four and some that were there in belief. And I think in this particular usage, it's broad rather than narrow. 
So it's talking about those of Judean descent. But I think there's also some of that picking at those that don't believe because it's setting a scene that's going to come later. Um, so Jesus is deeply troubled because he sees death, sickness, and unbelief. And that's what bothers him. Not that Lazarus is in the tomb. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And here's one of those trivia questions. What's the, the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. There you go. So when that comes up, the Bible trivia, you get that one right. Um, what was he weeping over? He knew that Lazarus was about to be raised. He was re weeping over that which troubled him. See, Jesus was broken hearted because the people didn't get it and they were dying. They were what we would call lost. They didn't even know what they didn't know. And it was going to end badly. He wept. Daniel? Uh, never mind. Okay. Um, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. So they thought that Jesus' weeping was part of the, the grieving celebration. We call it a celebration. The grieving process where they would do this open, um, showy um, practice. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? In other words, God's presence and God's action on our behalf is only uh, prevention. It's not cure. Right? You know, gee, if the, if the problem is death, um, couldn't have Jesus prevented that? If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. No. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to cure the problem of death. Not prevent it in the sense of the way that we treat a symptom to prevent the onset of a disease. He wants to cure the disease. He wants to completely take that disease out of the way. <clears throat> I probably gave you a wrong uh, reference for the end. Well, no, that would be the end of uh, scene three. So it's about... Um, Jesus being showing uh, compassion and when you think about this Jesus is God right that's what we believe as Christians here is God totally moved by the loss of his creation now he can make another creation but he cares about this one to the point where he actually entered into history to save us do you think that sure that there was an aspect of the individual relationship that entered into this. <clears throat> so when he's talking to, to Martha, it's like, do you believe this? I want, I want you to believe this. Right? So it's personal. It's not just corporate. But at the same time, I think that what his intention is here is, is a corporate 
understanding of defeating death. So he wants people to understand this is for God's the for God's glory, right? The people will understand that God, who cares so deeply, is willing to remove the consequence of sin, to actually die our death and bring us eternal life and in a way restore us from corruption to incorruption, that we are born again, right? So I, I think that that's the broader sense, and I get that because one, Jesus said, this is for the glory of God. And two, what happens next? So let's take a look. i got five minutes here. Let's take a look at the final scene. Scene four. Starts in verse 38. So, so Jesus, again, being deeply moved with him, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the disease, deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, because he's been dead for four days. Now you remember the dead and mostly dead, right? That they, they had this idea that the, the spirit and the, the soul would kind of hover about the body for up to three days, just in case they could re-enter and reanimate and, and revive. But this wasn't a revival because by the time you got to the fourth day, decomposition had set in to the point that, well, eh, no, no uh, self-respecting soul would come back into this body. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's serious decomposition occurs, um, you know, from the moment of death forward. And by four days, it's like, man, he's going to stink. And so, even though Jesus gave her this truth that he is the resurrection and the life and is explaining to her the nature of life and death, she still thinks, no, this is a preventative thing. Mm -hmm. He's trying to um, intervene before this happens. I'm not really sure what he wants to do with removing the stone. Um, he's going to stink. Jesus said to her, didn't I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So he had told her ahead of time that something was afoot and that this was going to help people understand who God is, who God's Christ is, and what his mission is in such a profound way that it would change their life. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This has got to freak people out. Pardon? Well, here's Lazarus. I wonder, I have no idea. There doesn't give any indication what Lazarus' experience was. But it, it does give us some indication about those who witnessed what was going on. That a man who was clearly dead, he was really dead, he was in the tomb stinking, comes hopping out still in the grave clothes. And Jesus says, don't just stand there, unwrap the guy. Right? And so, that's, well, I mean, 
I can, I can kind of imagine that it was something like that. You know? um, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. So there were both believers and unbelievers in this mix. But some went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. In other words, they didn't believe. This will always be the case when there is a, uh, a call to make a choice. Some will choose life and some will choose death. I don't know why that is. Some will want to master death when they have no expectation that that could ever be a present reality. Right? They'll um, believe in, uh, uh, you know, I think of what medicine is trying to do today, right? They're trying to push that limit. How long can you keep this body alive and functioning? Maybe you can achieve immortality, right? And if you read science fiction, um, it's about, you know, people that can extend their lives for long periods of time, master time, right? And Karen and I are caught up in the Dr. Who movie. And, uh, and that whole thing about, this is what people think. They think, if I can just master the machine, I can have eternal life. That's, that's insane. That's unbelief. That's not acknowledging who God is. Some of these people didn't believe. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we going to do? For this man is performing many signs. They just gave the final sign. Right? He had gone through all of these different uh, things that they held important and valuable, the last one being last rites, and he had challenged them all. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man died for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, which is to the north. And there he stayed with the disciples. This is where we're going to go ahead and, and, uh, and end, uh, even though it's not all the way through chapter 11. I'm going to call it the end for today. Um, what we're going to see next is we're going to see Jesus go through the final preparation. And interestingly, people that aren't even of Jewish origin coming to him because they're recognizing the truth of God in Jesus. Let's go ahead and close here in prayer. Lord, um, we thank you for one opportunity to come into um, the house that you've provided for this community, which you call your church. Um, we know that your church uh, is more than the building, Lord, that it is uh, those that believe in you and that have life in you and that um, it's universal in the sense that we cross many boundaries and people groups. And Lord, we just thank you that we can come together with our local community here in this church called Brush Prairie, that we can come to study your word, which you've carefully preserved for us, Lord, and that you would challenge us as we move through the word, that we would um, 
really wrestle with the issues of life and death, because that's the most important thing. You said so yourself. It isn't just because we are faced with death and taxes and that that's a bad lot, but Lord, you have said this is, this is the, the big enemy that you gave all to defeat. And you, Lord, we just thank you for that. We thank you that um, you would help us to deeper understand this in a way that it just leaks out of us when we're in others' presence that don't know you, that they would understand that, that we're different because of you. Lord, we thank you for this. Lord, we um, ask that you be with us this morning. We ask that you be with the service this morning. Um, Lord, um, we thank you for providing for us, protecting us, and serving us so tenderly, Lord. We thank you for all of this in your name we pray.